Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Jared Valbeer Show. I'm your host, Jared Valdeer, and one, two, one, two, three, go! Hey, 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 fill it up, fill it up, hey, 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 fill it up, fill it up, hey, 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 fill it up, fill it up, hey, hey, hey. I got a incredibly special guest with me today, the one, the only Ken Grossman, the founder of Sierra Nevada. Uh the the biggest OG on the block really when it comes to craft beer and it's an honor to have him on Ken thank you for doing this how are you today I'm doing fine and a great pleasure to be on your show yeah so uh, describe to all the uh, really jealous people throughout the United States that are going to hear this podcast probably sometime in November December when most of the weather especially here in the Midwest where I'm from is going to be awful what's the current status of uh, of the weather outside your door here. Okay, well, I'm, I'm not at home, so I'm down visiting my mother who turns 93 today. I brought down a couple of my daughters and grandchildren to celebrate with my mom. So I'm in Southern California. It's beautiful, sunny, uh, and warm. But back in Chico, we had uh, a big weather week, uh, lots and lots of rain. And which, yeah. Did you, did uh, you get some of that atmospheric river that I heard them you know, keep talking about? Did that hit you guys up there at all? That hit us very hard. Yep, uh, we got a lot of rain really quick. And uh, creeks uh, were running high, and uh, it did put an end to our fire season, which was a positive thing. But yeah. we didn't quite that much rain all at once. But at least at this point, we appreciate having rain at all in California. No doubt. And a happy birthday to Mrs. Grossman. She was able to uh, bless the world with uh, a great, great craft brewer and uh, in mind in, in the beer space. Uh, well, thank you. And I promise uh, all the listeners out there, we won't talk any more weather. It's just uh, a little way to get things going here. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you want to hear beer. So, Ken, you know, rewinding the clock, uh, those those super early days at Sierra Nevada, if there's something that you could pinpoint as, you know, being the toughest thing to overcome off the get-go, uh, what was it? Well, maybe even winding it back further. So uh, when I first started homebrewing, I, I understand you're a homebrewer or, or yes. enjoy making Yep. So uh, I started out as a fairly young brewer of uh, 1969. And back then, getting ingredients was uh, very difficult, getting quality ingredients. Um, back in that era, home brewing was done for a cheap source of alcohol, sort of with carryover from prohibition times, uh, and quite difficult to get good hops, to get good yeast, uh, to even get uh, barley malt that uh, was from this country. Most everything was imported from the UK, where home brewing uh, was a, a more developed hobby over there. There. But uh, again, uh, in the UK, home brewing was successful because it avoided paying taxes and it was a cheap way to, uh, to get beer because they had yeah. such high rates. So people started brewing at home. Uh, so for me, I guess education and ingredients uh, going back to my homebrew days. And then I opened a homebrew supply store in 1976 uh, in Chico uh, in part so I could get ingredients to, to make beer with myself. And then a couple of years later, 1978, went and visited New Albion, which was the, the first startup sort of a home brewer gone pro, uh, Jack McAuliffe, and saw Fritz Maytag, went down to the Anchor Brewery, and was inspired to do my own thing. So um, sold my homebrew supply store in 78, wrote a business plan. The The difficult challenges, I mean, money was certainly one. Um, nobody in their right mind would loan money to a a startup brewer, if you were a bank and you looked at the state of the industry, um, small brewers were going out of business left and right. And so not a good investment. So after we wrote our business plan, we shopped it around and nobody would give us a penny. So we went to family and friends and started borrowing money and spent all the, the savings I had for college and for selling the homebrew shop, uh, but really had to fabricate all the equipment ourselves. You couldn't go buy a, a little homebrew or a little small brewery setup like you can today. 
Today, there's dozens of manufacturers from Asia and Europe and, and in the U.S. as well and Canada where you can just buy a homebrew kit but uh, or excuse me, a small brewing kit. Uh, but uh, back then, you had to build it all. So I went and enrolled in welding and fabrication and refrigeration and electrical, all those uh, skills at the junior college, and just started to convert dairy tanks and food tanks into beer brewing equipment. I was so going to say, was... you kind of made that first system of yours famous in a way. I feel like it has a cult following. And you guys, it's still operational today, is it not? It is actually. It's uh, up at a brewery called Quintopia in Quincy, whose brewery burned down. And uh, we had planned uh, pre-COVID to take our original brew house that I had uh, built out of old dairy stuff uh, on the road. So we actually mounted it all on a trailer, put wheels under it, made it self-contained with propane tanks. And uh, we just had to pull up somewhere and hook up to water uh, and we were able to make beer. And um, so when the Quintopia Brewery had their fire due to COVID, we weren't going to do that road trip. Uh, we towed the brew house up to uh, Quincy and they're up there making beer in it today. Did you have to uh, write them up a, a user's manual with, uh, you know, your own specs on everything? I mean, there's no, there's probably no customer support number to call for that system. No, there isn't. I think they were resourceful enough to figure it out. So yeah. Um, that's awesome. Hey, that's a truly unique one of one system, I'm sure. Uh, and, you know, a cool thing for them to be able to brew on. Uh, when you were running that homebrew shop, and even back, let me even you know, rewind back to when you were homebrewing, you know, when did you come across Cascade Hops? Was it when you were homebrewing? Was it when you were running the sh uh, homebrew shop? Yeah, so I had family who actually lived up near Yakima back in the 70s. And uh, when I had started the homebrew shop and uh, the need to be able to, to buy quality hops, you couldn't really do it through dealers at the time. The hops that were available for typical homebrew shops uh, came in these bricks that were really old, really uh, not good quality, and typically just one variety called cluster. And they were actually uh, mostly exported to Africa to use in bread baking, oh, really? um, which was... Something I later researched, I was wondering where hops and bread came from. But uh, in uh, climates that don't have refrigeration, they would add hops to the culture and it would keep the bacteria levels down because hops have a natural antiseptic property. And so hops were, uh, I think, originally added for preservative purposes. Uh, and maybe the, the flavor of hops got to be uh, also part of the the style of baking they were doing. Uh, but that was the sort of the quality of hop you could buy. It was really not intended for making beer. Um, so I drove up to Yakima in my old uh, Toyota station wagon, and I visited a number of hop dealers. I went to the hop co-op, and I bought 100 one-pound blocks of hop samples. And back in that era, what were called brewer's cuts was a cut out of a bale of hops, and that uh, cut then went to the brewery for selection. And so if you were buying uh, hops most brewers didn't travel to the Yakima or other hop regions. They would get these samples sent to them, and then they would make their selection based on that. Well, I convinced this uh, hop co-op to sell me uh, 100 of those one-pound samples, and I asked for every variety they had available, which at the time was, I think, about five or six varieties. And Cascade <laughs> was one of those. I mean, today we've got literally hundreds of varieties available. Yes. Uh, back then, it was uh, the U.S. crop was about 70% cluster. Uh, that one variety was was pretty much the U.S. variety. And then all the aroma hops came out of Europe. So uh, Germany or Czechoslovakia, uh, some out of the U.K., um, some out of Poland and other areas like that. Uh, but really, the U.S. was known for growing just a, a a standard bitter hop that was only used to provide bitterness and no aroma. And Cascade was really one of the first hops bred as an aroma hop um, that had 
unique character. Um, some of the big brewers had tried to, to get some varieties grown over here that would al allow them to be less dependent on European hops. But most of the brewmasters at the times came from Europe. And so when they were smelling hops that were grown in America, like the Cascade, it was very, very foreign as far as the aroma profile. And so it, it really didn't appeal to the typical lager brewer in America. Um, but back then you could buy bullions and brewer's gold and Northern Brewer, those were sort of the, the higher alpha hops, again, not typically used for aroma, uh, and then Cluster, and then Cascade came, uh, and then a few years later, Centennial. And so the, the American uh, development of aroma hops was, uh, was fairly slow to come and be adopted, and, and mainly because of the, the differences between the American-grown hops and what they were used to using from Europe. Yeah, it's a little different, a little different now than than I'm sure it was, you know, back at the genesis of everything. That that original batch of Cascade that you were loading up in the uh, Toyota station wagon, was it love at first smell? Was it love at first taste? Did it take a while to get used to it? You know, what were your first impressions with it? Well, as a home brewer, um, I was actually using Cascades back when I, I first was able to buy them. So I, I loved the, the aroma and it was um, you know, uniquely different than most of the other varieties that we could buy out of Europe. So I was able to source saws and holler tower and a few of the other noble varieties uh, through different supply uh, opportunities from sort of the homebrew homebrew sector. Uh, Homebrewing was starting to to be more popular, and there were starting to be better quality ingredients coming in uh, in the late seventies. So. Uh, I liked Cascades, and when we were designing Sierra Nevada Pale Ale as home brewers, before we actually opened the brewery, we experimented with a, a bunch of hops um, and chose the Cascade because of its unique you know, piney citrus character, and, and uh, we thought we needed to stand out from the crowd. Uh, as a small brewer selling individual bottles, we couldn't afford to have six-pack carriers, so we sold single bottles for 85 cents, um, and we wanted to make sure that there was a, a reason why somebody would uh, hopefully fall in love with the beer, that it was just you know unique and distinctive compared to American mass market lager beers at the time. Yeah, it's amazing, too, that it still, it still stands out by itself, even in the day where there's, you know, so many modern crazy hop varieties. Uh, you know, you have a Sierra Nevada pale ale and it's distinct to itself. It's like the epitome of cascade hops, uh, you know, just an incredibly well done beer. Um, funny enough, I, I do, I end the show with like, you know, the, the little desert Island beer question, apocalyptic beer question. And, and I've had several brewers say Sierra Nevada pale ale. And it's, it's, I mean, such a testament to, to the beer you crafted, but you know, even now it's still, you know, uniquely its own, uh, even with all the other stuff going on, you know, there can be a ton of noise in the craft beer industry, but I feel like Sierra Nevada pale ale is such a cornerstone and just such a great thing for craft beer to lean on. Uh, and it's, it's always such a pleasure to be able to crack one open and drink it. Yeah, we've tried to really stick to our roots with that beer, even though we've, uh, you know, it's been 40 years, uh, it's over 40 years now since I first started brewing it. Uh, we still use the same yeast, we still use the same hops, we still use uh, essentially the same uh, recipe, it's still bottle can, can condition, so there's still live yeast in it. And doing that on our scale has got some challenges, but we've... Uh, we felt that that beer really needed to have that bottle conditioning to contribute to some of the uh, character and aroma. So we've continued on with all those practices uh, these 40 years. Yeah, and anyone listening, that's really important what Ken just touched on because the, the freshness that you get out of the beer is, is amazing. 
with that bottle conditioning that they that they do with the beer it it, uh it really is able to let that beer you know stay fresh for uh much longer than most other beers uh with just that you know little little detail that's added when did you brew sierra nevada palo for the first time was it when you were a home brewer did you have that recipe you know kind of locked and loaded for for when you started the uh, the brewery so uh we started the construction i said wrote a business plan in 78 uh, started to build equipment and started the construction uh, a little while later. And every week we would make a batch of homebrew. And the idea was we were going to come up with the recipes we wanted to commercialize. And I've still got many of those. So I've got uh, uh, pale ale version one through 12 on homebrew level um, back during the construction phase of the brewery. Um, so we were trying to hone in that recipe as we were building the, uh, the, what, w- what w- would be the initial brewery at uh, 10 barrel size. So 300 gallon batches. We were brewing five gallon batches of what we were hoping would be the winner and we were gonna scale up. So that was happening simultaneously to the construction. If you were to go back in time and have a glass of that version one Sierra Nevada Pale, how much different would it be uh, you know, what, what was it like that very first batch? Uh, you know, is, is there anything that you remember sticking out? Well, the, the first commercial batches, we dumped, uh, 10 of them, or at least 10, I think maybe 11. Um, and not because they were bad, but because we couldn't nail the recipe, the, the same every time. So we went from five gallon batches to 300 gallon batches. One of the things we uh, needed to do as commercial brewers was harvest the yeast out of a fermentation and re-pitch that into the next fermentation. So that's commonly done by brewers. Um, Today you can buy yeast, but back uh, when we started, we cultured our own yeast. So we had uh, our own yeast library and we had selected the strain we were gonna use for Sierra Nevada Pale Ale um, out of a whole bunch of yeast we picked up all over the world. And so some of the earlier homebrew batches, we were still experimenting with yeast strains. And so some of those had much different characteristics. Once we settled on our strain, uh, we then had to sort of grow it up to enough to brew 300 gallons. So that took uh, a few generations of propagating the yeast up. Um, And then once we started to brew commercially, our intent was to harvest yeast from batch one and put it in batch two and harvest a portion of of, uh, yeast from batch two and put it in batch three. And that serial serial repitching is the standard way a commercial brewery would operate. Uh, what we didn't have a good handle on when we started up was how much oxygen we needed to keep uh, in the fermenter when the yeast was pitched in order to keep it healthy. And so we ended up with the struggling fermentations, batch three, four, five, six, seven. And even though they tasted okay, they weren't the same batch to batch. Uh, and by about batch 10, we realized we had uh, a problem. Or we knew we had a problem up for that, but we, we, we realized what the problem was, was that we weren't aerating our work enough. And so once we started to do that, uh, we were off and running. So by batch uh, 11 or 12, we had nailed the uh, fermentation. So they were fermenting at the same rate every time and had the same flavor profile. So has it been pretty, you know, smooth sailing with that beer ever since that point? Or were there any other points where you kind of had to adjust something? Over the last 40 years, there's been pl- plenty of things. and. and- <laughs> Mostly around, uh, you know, raw materials. So, you know, we're we're brewing with agricultural products that are not exactly the same year to year, field to field. Um, you know, you get more rain, less rain, the protein content, uh, the size of the grain, 
you know, all those environmental factors do play a role in the raw materials. Um, you know, you get a, a, a hard freeze or you don't get a freeze for the hops and, and they mature differently. Uh, you have a really warm summer. Uh, so all those variables are something that brewers juggle on a continuous basis. So we're always um, slightly tweaking things like mash temperatures and uh, the amount of hops we use and the fields uh, that the hops are growing. So we go up to uh, Yakima, Idaho, Oregon, where most of our American hops are growing. Uh, we have people up there throughout the year, uh, and especially coming into harvest time, uh, we go up and inspect the fields before they're picked and try to uh, focus on growers and fields that we know produce uh, superior products as far as the, the hops go. Um, so we've got that relationship with the growers, and we do the same with our malsters, go visit them and uh, tour their facilities, you know, talk to the barley farmers, and, and we're involved on that level as well. And then in Chico, we actually have our own barley field, our own hop field. So we farm, uh, we have a small farming operation um, and we have a partner uh, in, in uh, the Bay Area, uh, Admiral Malting, uh, that does the malting of our uh, grains we grow ourselves. And then uh, we now have our own picker and dryer so we can uh, handle our hops uh, as well. So we've been doing that for more than 10 years. That's such a cool thing to be able to do. Uh, I can only imagine how satisfying that is to be able to have, you know, your own, you know, barley growing in a field and, you know, the hops and be able to just, you know, have, have kind of a self-sustaining, uh, you know, area to the brewery. Obviously you guys are probably using way more <laughs> ingredients than you can just grow right on premise, but it's really cool nonetheless. And I know, you know, I've had the estate ale that you guys do and it's a really good beer. I want to touch, I want to go back to when you were talking about, you know, coming, stumbling upon the, the yeast strain that you guys use for Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And, uh, you know, for all you guys that are listening, the yeast is, is somewhat famous. It's uh, the, the Chico strain is what it's mostly referred to now. But where did the Chico strain come about? What were the origins uh, on that? You know, we don't know exactly the origins um, of that strain. Um, we were, say, uh, at that point in time, pretty sophisticated home brewers. Uh, I had a partner and, and we sourced yeast from all over the globe. So we got some out of the, some of the yeast banks in Europe. Uh, we got some from the, the last of the remaining um, brewer support labs of that era. So there were a, a couple of laboratories that um, supported small uh, sort of legacy brewers, not like we have today with Y-Yeast and some of the other yeast suppliers. But these had technical brewers. They had uh, technical support services for a brewer that, that didn't have uh, laboratory facilities on site or things like that. Um, and so we got strains from a variety of those. And they wouldn't tell you where they got their uh, collected yeast from. Um, so we don't really know the exact origin of where our yeast came from. Uh, but we got it from one of the yeast labs um, way back as, as home brewers and then um, and, and yeast will tend to morph and change a little bit based on the uh, fermentation conditions and, and how you handle it. Um, so um, our, our yeast is a little different, I think, than the, probably the Chico yeast that you might buy from a yeast lab, only in that, um, you know, the environment that we handle it in is different than what a yeast lab would necessarily uh, handle their yeast. Yeah, I can imagine. It's uh it's funny, you know, because the yeast, the yeasts are the real, the real uh, beer makers, so to speak. You know, they're the ones that are making the booze that that we love. Uh, without the yeast, it would just be uh, kind of a sweet, 
bitter syrup. Um, so they're important and they kind of have a mind of their own sometimes. I know just speaking from homebrewing experience, uh, they could be a little finicky and, uh, and unpredictable at times, especially, you know, uh, how, how old they are, uh, the generation they're on, uh, how much oxygen. There's just a lot of yeast variables, way more yeast variables, I think, than, I mean, arguably any other variable that directly impacts the beer. Uh, you know, if you, you know, you, you know how it is. If you were to, you know, ferment a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale at 80 degrees compared to 60 degrees, it's going to taste like a completely different beer. Probably. In- yeah, you, you mentioned some of the key points. So oxygen is a huge one. Uh, enough free amino nitrogen or fan uh, is another one. Normally, if you're making all malt beers, it's not a problem. Uh, and fermentation temperature and certainly cleanliness. So uh, if you pay attention to keeping your yeast happy and healthy, it goes a, a really long way to making great beer. That's the downfall of most home brewers uh, is one of, one of those things. And having the homebrew shop, I used to taste a lot of customers' beers that would come in. What's wrong with my beer? And uh, and nine times out of 10, it was the, the yeast was either not handled right um, or cleanliness was a problem. Yeah, I always get a kick out of talking about yeast with uh, my, my two little kids when they're down in the brewery. Because, you know, when, they, when this, it starts bubbling, I have to tell them that's the yeast, you know, eating the sugars and they're, you know, they're burping or farting, whatever you want to call it, uh, out, out the CO2. But I was like, yeah, the, all these little yeast are in there, you know, eating the beer. And it's, uh, I don't know, did you ever uh, read your kids the book, uh, Good Night Moon? Or, uh, you know, were you ever read that as a kid? Just a classic, classic children's book. So they made a good night brew book. That's like a brewer spinoff on that. And uh, the yeast get a lot of shout outs in that book. And they're just like, you know, little, little, uh, you know, dots. And so they can at least put some kind of picture with what's going on in there. But it's just, you can just see like an almost like alien like thought process in their head that there's something in there that's eating what I have made. And then we're going to drink the byproduct. So kind of kind of a, a fun way to look at it, you know, through the eyes of a kid. Yeah, when you explain to people that, uh, you know, during the height of your fermentation, you might have 100 million uh, yeast cells um, or close to that uh, in a milliliter of beer. So you multiply that by, you know, 12 ounce bottles, 355. You know, there are billions of those uh, little yeasts doing their job. So uh, yeah, you got to keep them happy. Yeah, hats off to the yeast. You guys are, uh, you guys are the... The unsung heroes. Uh, it's getting it's getting to that time of year where I get really excited because uh, Celebration Ale is is going to hit the shelves. Yeah, that is that is one of my favorite beers that you guys make. When did you start formulating that beer, and how did that kind of come about? So we made it in 1981. Um, so it was really our first. Uh, we had pale ale, porter, and stout, and it was our first seasonal beer uh, we made. Uh, and really was inspired by some of the dry hopping that I, I did as a home brewer. So we wanted to dry hop. Uh, we wanted to, again, feature Cascades and Centennial in this case. Um, and uh, I went up to Yakima on a, a trip to buy hop, found a field that had these just beautiful um, babies. And uh, so normally, at least in the Yakima Valley, uh, the, the year that you plant the hops, you can get a small crop. And in some cases, as much as 70 or 80% of a crop, uh, even as close away as, uh, as Oregon, uh, their first year, they normally cannot get a first crop. So it's that little added length of day and the climate of the Yakima Valley that allows a, a baby crop to be harvested uh, year one after planting. 
And I found a field of these just wonderful smelling cascades, small cones, but just full of lupulin, um, really smelled great. And so I, I got a bale of that and made Celebration Ale, about uh, 90 cases uh, in 1981, um, and dry hopped the heck out of it with a lot of cascades and, and um, uh, sort of fell in love with that style of beer and we've been making it ever since. Yeah, and it's almost like, you know, it was like a, really the first super popular IPA without really marketing it as an IPA, correct? Uh, yeah, and, and actually, uh, when I was going back through my old recipes, so I, I'm a, a pack rat and I found a, a box of uh, all our original home brewing um, pilot brews for the brewery, we did have an IPA. That was one of our initial go-to uh, products that we were going to release. And after brewing it and thinking about the consumer and how, you know, people weren't used to hops, uh, we decided a pale ale was probably safer. And so we didn't continue on uh, doing the development of the, the uh, true IPA and we called it India Pale Ale. Um, we weren't being very um, true to our, our roots as far as using all American hops. Uh, when we did a, a, our pale ale, we decided not to import any hops for it. We intentionally wanted to make an American pale ale and not a English style pale ale. Um, and when we brewed some of those IPAs, we were bringing some hops over from Europe to, to do those back in the late seventies. Uh, but we didn't think uh, America was quite ready for that. And then when we really celebration ale and it did uh, really find a following, uh, we continued to, to make beers like that and then add some IPAs later on that didn't get widely distributed. And then obviously Torpedo and a few of the other ones we, we um, released after that. Yeah. One of the really cool things about celebration, uh, kind of comes back to what you touched on earlier with the bottle conditioning that you guys do, cause that beer really holds up. Well, I, I think it was like the middle of the summer and I was over at a buddy's house and, uh, you know, when it is beer fridge and he had a bottle of celebration from, you know, last fall or, you know, whenever it was released. And I was like, you know what, I want to, I want to see how this is holding up. And it was amazing. Still, it was great. And, and that's so hard to do. And, you know, rarely would I, would I, you know, even be adventurous enough to, you know, open up an IPA that's, you know, nine months old and, you know, taste what's inside, but it was still a great beer still had, you know, a nice, nice crisp bitterness to it. it wasn't like all caramely and round and, and weird. And, and so, you know, as soon as I had that, I was like, okay, this beer, this beer really is special. It's not something that just gets me excited because, you know, the holidays are around the corner and it tastes great, but you know, it's different. It stood the test of time, you know, an IPA before the, you know, IPAs really got popular and, uh, you know, kudos to, to, to being able to do that. Yeah. I mean, that, that beer, I mean, IPAs were originally brewed for long ocean voyages. Um, and, and so they were hopped up and high in alcohol in order to give them some inherent stability. Um, you know, we've learned a lot, uh, about brewing since the early days of IPA brewing, but, uh, those things, alcohol and hops, certainly are great preservatives. But the other one to pay attention to, and you mentioned bottle conditioning, so the, the yeast does suck the oxygen up during um, the, the packaging process. You pick up oxygen invariably. And having live yeast does help minimize the amount of oxidative um, effects on the beer that happen in the first few weeks or months after packaging. Um, so controlling oxygen, um, having yeast in the, in the package, uh, is important and that uh, that gives pretty good beer stability if you keep it cool 
Uh, you can have great tasting IPAs uh, months and months later. Uh, you lose some aromatic qualities and a few things change, but you don't necessarily have to go to that cardboardy oxidized taste if you control oxygen throughout your whole brewing process and then pay close attention to packaging as well. Yeah, I think those are some of the most important things, especially for any brewery that's, you know, getting into production is, you know, minimizing the oxygen, because at that point, that's like the name of the game for having your beer be able to, you know, sit on the shelf for a couple months. It's it's so important. Uh, when when you were picking out Celebration to be that seasonal beer, you know, did, did anyone like kind of think you were, you know, a little bit off the wall or crazy for going with just like a really hoppy beer for, you know, the kind of fall Christmas, you know, holiday instead of, you know, just trying to go, you know, something maybe just dark or spiced. Like if you think of like other breweries, you know, that put out Christmas sales or even like some of those wonky, you know, Belgian, you know, Christmas, you know, fall beer, seasonal beers that have been around for a long time, you know, nothing really follows the, uh, you know, seasonal, uh, IPA for the winter time, uh, you know, was that, did you get any backlash from anybody on that or uh, was it always kind of something that was smooth sailing? I don't recall any backlash, but, uh, you know, speaking of the other, uh, brewery beers around the world that had holiday beers, we did go taste all those. And, and I made a couple of pilgrimages, uh, very early on when we started the brewery to Belgium and the UK several times and Germany and, and, uh, you know, got to meet and, and sample uh, beers from all over the world fresh because uh, the beers that were being imported into the U.S. at the time from those countries weren't necessarily handled that well. And, you know, they were months and months old and not, not necessarily refrigerated. And so most imported beers, uh, even the holiday beers, uh, were not very fresh, uh, but sampling them in their own countries. And, and then we made the call, you know, we don't want to use spices. Let's use hops as our spice. And so I, I think um, from the consumer appreciation of hops uh, in that area, it was not as high as it is today by any means, uh, but we have always tried to pay attention to balance. So even though that beer has a lot of hops in it, it also does have a lot of malt and, and uh, a bit of caramel and roasted malts as well, which today, you know, most of the IPA styles tend to be paler in color and less of uh, the caramel uh, malt backbone, which gives balance, but it does also um, cover up a little bit of the, the hoppy character of some beers. So a lot of modern IPAs um, don't use any caramelized malt. So they just go straight pale malt with, with uh, a lot of hops where we felt that a balanced hop malt uh, beer would be more appealing to, to a wider group. And I think that it, it really was that sweetness does help offset the, the bitter character of the hops. Yeah, no doubt. I think, uh, I think that beer, you know, just withstanding the test of time has been a testament to, you know, that balancing was a, was a good call and, you know, definitely works. And there's some, something to be said for it, for sure. Uh, Ken, is there anything right now that's going on in craft beer that you kind of see spreading through the whole industry uh, that is kind of accepted as a truth or, you know, just kind of a dogma that, you know, goes without being called out? that, you know, you see or, you know, just don't agree with uh, as far as, you know, the beer goes? You know, the, the brewing um, community sort of follow consumer a bit and the consumers today are pretty fickle and, and uh, you know, leaving beer and going to seltzers and uh, going to, you know, cocktails. So, you know, brewers are having to, to be more resourceful about the, uh, you know, meeting that consumer demand. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, 
um, you know, hoppy IPAs and, and other styles of craft beer um, uh, at this point are sort of flat. We're, we're not really growing much as an industry and it's being overshadowed a bit by some of the you know, flavored waters with alcohol and uh, some of the seltzers and, and spritzers. So, um, but, uh, you know, beer's here to stay, but we just have to make sure we stay connected to our consumer and uh, do try to, to educate the, the next generation of drinkers about, uh, you know, all the ranges of beers that we've, we've been producing all these years. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll still have lots of uh, drinkers who uh, uh, um, like beer and who like uh, hoppy beer and, and don't necessarily go down the, the flavored alcohol water um, route. So yeah, pay. it's almost, I, th I feel like beer is definitely here to stay. You know, you always see the beer alternatives kind of come and go in waves, you know, yep. like it was, uh, you know, I remember growing up and there was, you know, wine coolers in my parents' fridge yep. and, you know, that shifted into like the, the Zimas and the Smirnoff ice and the, you know, all that kind of, and now it's gone into the seltzers. And I feel like that, you know, side of the industry will just keep running its course there, but, you know, beer will always, you know, be there and, uh, you know, hopefully always be king. And I, I think it will be, um, you know, I think it just kind of ebbs and flows a little bit. Um, I'm sure that, you know, you've seen a lot of that over you yep. know, the, the course of, uh, of, of Sierra Nevada's uh, uh, existence for sure. Yes. Right now are slowing down pretty dramatically and it's, it's caught a number of producers a little off guard. They, they thought it was going to continue, you know, at the growth rate it was throughout the pandemic, but, uh, it, it started to plateau and decline in some areas. So hopefully beer will get reestablished as the go-to beverage. Hey, everybody who's listening right now, make sure you're going to your favorite brewery, getting some of their beers, support them, have your buddies support them. Next time you're trying to figure out where to go on the weekend with you, with your buddies to have a good time or your friends or your family, pick a brewery. It's always a great time going to a brewery and, uh, you know, having some beers with friends, with family, um, I always enjoy it when I can find a brewery where the, you know, the kids have some space to run around or they got the live music going. And, um, you know, I've, I've never made it into your guys' place in Chico, but I'd love to, it looks beautiful and, uh, looks like a, a great environment. Have you been to Asheville? I no, I had, I've, <laughs> I've, I've seen pictures of that place too. Holy smokes. You guys, yeah. you guys went all out on that place. That, yeah. That just what, beautiful. Just what you mentioned. So we have a big kid area. We have music. Uh, we really have, a a great uh, 200 acres of, of grounds. Uh, most of it's wild. Uh, we've got uh, river frontage. Uh, yeah, it's a great place to come and hang and hang for the day and good food and good beer and uh, relax. I heard Asheville's a really cool city too. Uh, you know, a lot to do uh, outdoors with, with biking, walking, yep. biking, all that kind of stuff. So that's definitely on the list. That's a good reminder. I was trying to figure out, you know, being the responsible dad now and you know, trying to plan way ahead when we're going to go on our little family trips because kids are in school, sports are around the corner, all that good stuff. Got to put Asheville on the calendar for sure. Yep. It's worth a visit to the to the area. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm definitely going to do it. You know, what do you guys have going on right now at Sierra Nevada that, that's getting you excited? Boy, we got really a lot going on, actually. Um, you know, we've branched out a bit, so we've got a little kombucherie that we've been uh, – uh, working on for the Get, last couple getting of years. into the kombucha game okay alcoholic kombucha oh alcoholic uh, kombucha okay yeah. very nice so we we put our uh, our science hats on um and so we've got a uh, our own scoby our our own culture of yeast and bacteria that we 
uh, put together. So um, we've got a very predictable fermentation profile. So it's not uh, like though it's not like the one that I had in my closet in Arizona when I was trying to make kombucha down there that turned into straight vinegar. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> we we selected the strains and and um, so we we uh, don't produce a lot of acetic acid bacteria. So no vinegar. Uh, so we got that going on. We've uh, recently purchased two three and a half barrel brew houses. So each uh, site will have a brand new brew house. Um, the Chico Brewery has a 10 barrel brew house that I've, I've had in place for uh, almost 20 years now uh, for doing R&D product development. Uh, the Asheville Brewery has a 20 barrel uh, brew house that allows them to do small batch brewing or relatively small batch brewing. But we're equipping each brewery with a three and a half barrel uh, brew house as well. Uh, identical equipment. So we'll be able to do um, new product development of both breweries with the same equipment and uh, compare notes. And um, I, I join the, the Thursday tastings every week where we taste all the sort of new innovation products, uh, a range of, of fermented uh, beverages, beers, and everything else you can imagine. Um, um, so that's a thing. We, we put in new canning, uh, a new mini canning line, a really high quality one, though, out of Europe. Uh, a small rotary 100 can a minute line, but one that'll give the, the same quality control that our big lines have. So most uh, linear lines that are uh, built really cannot deliver the low uh, TPO, the, the package oxygen levels uh, that some of the, the bigger uh, can fillers can. So this is the sort of the smallest of the quality can fillers. So we just, uh, in last week, um, our friends over at Russian River, uh, Vinny's putting the same one in uh, um, end of this year. Um, so we're, we're both able to do super high quality, but small batch runs of canning. So that's coming up shortly. How scary was it going from bottles to cans? You know, I saw the, the trend. I think I'll, I'll take some credit. I saw the trend happening and um, I bought a big canning line for the time, 800 cans a minute. And my, uh, head of sales said, oh boy, we're never going to sell um, this at all. And some of our distributors were, were actually also not very supportive. They said, yeah, craft beer in cans, I don't think so. Um, so that was nearly 20 years ago where they were poo-pooing the idea. And uh, now cans are uh, approaching 60% of our volume um, and still growing pretty rapidly. So um, cans are a uh, a very good package for a variety of reasons. I, I know some people still prefer glass and that's fine, but uh, you know, cans uh, a lot more economically friendly on a transportation standpoint. Um, you can get more um, cases of beer on a truck because they're lighter. Uh, so from an environmental footprint, plus the recyclability is just much better than glasses. Uh, cans do have a place. And now that they've got uh, non-BPA lining materials, uh, that concern is, is uh, pretty much gone. Uh, and they do keep, you know, light out and actually keep oxygen out better. Uh, what most uh, people don't realize is even though your bottle cap is holding the CO2 gas in, oxygen still leaks back into the bottle cap or through the bottle cap into the beer. So as the beer sits there on the shelf, uh, oxygen is absorbing through the plastic liner on the cap into the beer at a slow, steady rate. So you are always are getting some oxidation happening through the, the bottle cap seal. Uh, can seals are a little bit more secure the way the, the um, can is seamed. And so even though there's probably a little bit of oxygen migration back into a, a can, less so than bottles. 
Yeah, it, which is uh, interesting. You know, you don't usually think about oxygen creeping back into a, a sealed sealed uh, bottle, but it makes sense. I, I love, I think cans are just easier in general just to transport. And then, you know, little kids, you know, walking around, running around the house, you know, you don't have to worry about glass breaking. And, you know, yep. I, I pour most of my beers into a glass anyway. So it's it's easier, just like you said, recyclability, being able to throw them in the recycle bins way easier. Um, and, you know, I think the aesthetic, uh, you know, might have been disrupted a little bit there right at the beginning when it was changing over. But I, I think craft beers definitely accepted the uh, the change and, you know, are, are on board with the cans at this point for sure. Yeah, I mean, it took craft brewers, I think, to make cans popular or pop that popular for a higher end product. Um, you know, getting a labeler, getting a bottle filler, getting a labeler, get, getting a, you know, a crowner, all those things for a small brewer were a lot harder than getting a printed can that uh, you, you then could buy a fairly inexpensive can filler and at least get beer out the door uh, or a crowler uh, seamer. So there were ways where cans were uh, a, a bit easier for craft brewers to get into the marketplace. Yeah, which is, which is good. It's always a good thing when, uh, you know, you can make that transition and have it be, you know, easier and, you know, go, go forward in a good way. Uh, but I want to hear about the, the, these Thursday tastings that you've been uh, a part of, you know, is there, is there anything that's, uh, you know, sticking out or you're caught your eye that you've been sipping on? Wow. Um, our team, uh, uh, does a whole bunch of, of cool innovation brewing. So I had a beer last week that was brewed with fava beans and, um, it was a uh, barley and baba beans, but it was a project we were working with through the local college, uh, trying to find a use for baba beans um, because they're a good cover crop. Uh, so for uh, soil, um, getting soil nitrogen levels back up, um, you know, farmers plant cover crops in, in uh, off years when they're not maybe farming the field um, and what to do with all the fava beans. And so uh, it was a project of let's see if we can make a, a fava bean beer and how it tasted and i was shocked at how good it was so um it was very surprising and i never had imagined brewing with fava beans but um, yeah how do you get how do you get the uh the starch of a of a bean to convert well so you need to use it with barley malt so okay. uh yeah so you you can only use a portion of it and i think this was uh, in the 25 percent fava bean range and 75 percent barley malt uh, so there's ample enzymes in most uh, barley malt that can convert other starches. That's how you know brewers use corn or rice. Uh, typically, uh, they don't malt those, uh, even though you could. Um, they just grind them up and mix them with barley mash, which has ample enzymes to break down additional starches. And what what style of beer was the the fava bean beer? Uh, it was a pale ale or IPA style, sort of okay. mild. But it wasn't, there was, there was no funky bean character to it? Not at all. I was shocked. Yeah, it was really quite good. Interesting. It had, it had some interesting flavors, but nothing that was out of, too out of the ordinary or objectionable. Yeah, so will we ever see a fava bean beer on the shelf? Yeah, have you, maybe a couple of weeks ago, you would have just, just laughed out loud, not even taking it seriously, but maybe some consideration now, maybe like maybe it'll be on there one day. Yeah, there's that possibility. Um, yeah, so I said I was quite surprised uh, both at the use of fava beans and, and that it really did, didn't uh, have any real negative taste impacts. And was there anything else uh, that you've tasted lately? Uh, we taste such a wide range of things. So yeah, ra ranging uh, certainly a whole range of beers and, and 
you know, using um, a lot of new hop varieties. So we, we have a pretty active uh, R&D hop program in conjunction with some uh, of the growers um, in Oregon, Idaho, and Washington. And so we're always brewing with, uh, you know, numbered varieties, we call them. So they're, uh, you know, breeding a hop is a lot more complex than, you know, people probably think about. Uh, it typically would take 10 years of trials and breeding of a certain hop that you might like before it would be commercialized. So they have to go through a lot of disease uh, testing to make sure that the hop variety isn't too susceptible to some disease, which then might spread to other fields. And so they're, uh, they start out uh, you know, doing whatever crossing uh, they do between varieties. Uh, they may plant one or two uh, hills uh, and grow them up. So uh, you can go through an experimental hop yard and there might be 500 different varieties of hops that have been bred that are in just small trial plots. And you can walk through during uh, the, the maturing window for those varieties and rob them. And you can say, boy, I really like this one. Um, and so then uh, we would typically, if we like something, uh, try to get the grower to plant more the next year. So we would fund, uh, you know, planting a, a bigger plot. Um, but it goes through many years of testing and trials for, again, disease susceptibility and then yield. Uh, you know, having a hop that you love, but you only get two or three bales per acre of yield on it. It's just not economical for anybody to, to raise uh, you know, a variety like that. Uh, so the, the pounds of, of hops per acre is also has to hit at least a minimum threshold. Um, and today we've got varieties that are yielding 15, 18, uh, 200 pound bales per acre. Um, back when I first started the, the cluster, which was I said, the, the workhorse for the U.S. brewing industry, uh, a good yield there might have been seven to nine bales an acre. Uh, Cascades are a pretty good yielder. They're nine to 10 bales an acre. Um, typically can be a little little different depending on the growing region. Um, but they have varieties now they're yielding, you know, 50% more than that. And then you look at the analytics, so the alpha acid um, and the oil fraction. And if you're growing a aroma hop, today you'd want something, you know, for for craft grower standards with a lot of oil. So you can get, you know, a big flavor impact. Um, again, varieties like Cascade maybe are one to two percent oil, um, but there are new varieties now that are maybe three to four percent oil. Uh, so um, you know you're getting a lot of bang for your buck today with some of the new varieties. So disease resistance needs to work, yield needs to work, and then if you're going for an aroma hop, you want a lot of aroma. If you're going for a bittering hop, you want a lot of alpha acid. Yeah. What are your What are your some uh, some of your favorites on the uh... On the, on the newer side of hops? Um, God, there's, you know, literally hundreds that, that uh, we sniff and go through. Um, I don't remember numbers right now that, that I could start rattling off as to our favorites, but, um, you know, quite a few of the varieties that are popular today, like Citra, um, you know, that was a hop we used in Torpedo and it was just a numbered variety. So we were one of the earlier supporters of, of Citra. Um, and there's been a number of those throughout the years that, uh, you know, us and a few other brewers have said, boy, we really like this hop. Um, we'll sponsor a two acre field or a five acre field or, or whatever it takes to, uh, to get the grower's commitment. And then you'll normally commit to, you know, buying that hop for three years or something so that if they're going to rip out another variety and plant the, the variety for you, uh, you've got to have a commitment uh, in there as well. 
And then sometimes they work out and sometimes, you know, after a couple of years, um, yields might not be what they were expected to be or, or some other uh, agronomic uh, situation that makes them not feasible for the grower to keep growing them. Uh, or you decided, yeah, they maybe weren't as great as we thought they were the first year we brewed with them. And uh, so there's sometimes that, you know, those programs peter out uh, due to uh, one of those reasons. And it seems like it's such a, it's such a long game. You know, you, you, you got to think big with that and it's not going to be like a, you know, this is going in my next batch of beer and it's all about tomorrow type of thing. And, you know, so you probably have to be pretty well established like yourself to, to really get into that aspect. So that's a, it's, you know, got to be a, a cool thing to be able to do, you know, to, you know, just stay one step ahead and, and really, you know, direct where, you know, the state of hops are going. Yeah, I mean, historically, so there's been a, a couple of uh, different breeding programs in uh, North America. Uh, there's been some that have been brewer funded. Um, there's some that are through universities. Um, but you really, you know, historically had to find a brewer to embrace the, the hop for uh, it to succeed. And there's probably been hundreds or thousands of, of hops that would have been great craft hops that were presented to a a major lager brewery back in the 60s or 70s uh, and they you know they smelled like you know pine or citrus or pineapple or you know something now that a, a craft brewer might say yeah give me more mango um, but back in that era they were you know wanting hops that smelled like a holler tower or like a saws or something they were familiar with so a lot of those varieties probably went by the wayside because no brewer would support the uh, continued planning of them. So they, they may have had all the characteristics that we would love today, but 20 years ago, uh, they were frowned on because they were just too atypical from, you know, what the, the, the old school brewers were used to using. Hey, some things are just ahead of their time. I mean, the DeLorean, <laughs> new age hop, you know, just it's timing's everything. So, you know, we're there now. People, people like the, uh, the, the hops with the, with the assertive mango and, and tropical fruit flavors and, you know, there, there's room for all the hops now, room for them yep. all. Uh, so, you know, growing uh, such a, a massive uh, craft brewery, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of leadership. Uh, and, and I'm sure you have a really large team of, of people and, you know, teams and teams just, you know, stacking and, and forming this hierarchy at Sierra Nevada. Uh, you know, what do you think is one of the most important things on building and maintaining a, a strong team? Well, obviously, you know, company culture is important to, to keep everybody headed in the same direction. So uh, that, that's not something you check a box. It's something you got to continually work on and, and make sure that you're paying attention to the needs of, of everybody who works in the company. So that's just an ongoing thing to, to you know, keep in, in front of you and keep focused on. Uh, and for us, I'd say, you know, focusing on quality, uh, innovation, um, uh, we've invested from pretty much day one. We, we had a laboratory when we started in 1980. Uh, we've continued to invest heavily in both the R&D. We've got a, a separate research and development laboratory with uh, a lot of fancy equipment in there. We've got uh, three gas chromatographs and, and ICPs and uh, all sorts of tools that help us uh, continue to raise the bar. Um, I've always felt that, that you know, good is not good enough, that you can always do better. And so as a philosophy, we've, we've always, you know, you know, tried to not sit on our laurels, but tried to look forward of how we can, you know, whether it's flavor stability or 
shelf stability or package quality or you know whatever it is, there's always room for improvement. So uh, just making sure our, our teams are aligned with the fact that um, you know the the increments may be getting smaller as you you know get better equipment. Uh, but there's still plenty of training to be done and there's still plenty of things to pay attention to to keep your quality high. Uh, so that's one you can't uh, take your eye off the ball either. Um, so I'd say, you know, keeping your culture together uh, and, you know, focusing on quality. You know, we've never been heavy marketers. Uh, the marketplace is a lot more competitive today than it was when I started. It was competitive in a different way. Today we're competing with, uh, you know, global brewers or, or you know, our U.S. beer industry is dominated by a few global players, um, and so it's a, a competitive place to do business. So um, you know, it's sort of table stakes that you keep your focus on quality uh, to grow the company, but you also have to figure out how to be competitive in the marketplace uh, in order to survive. Yeah, I think that that whole uh, you know complacency kills mindset is so important. You know, because it does get real easy to, to rest on laurels and be happy with success, but you're never going to keep progressing. And you know what you just said, you know, the, the higher and higher you get to the top, it's just smaller and smaller changes, you know, that, that you have to make to see the results that you want to see and continue to move forward. But there's always that space to improve. Yep. Uh, and I think that's just a great philosophy to just take day by day, you know, year by year in life. Um, it's, it's a recipe for winning really in my book. Yep, I, I agree. So, Ken, last last question. It's uh, it's your final night on Earth. The apocalypse is imminent. You got one beer. It can be as many of that one beer as, as you want. It's the old desert island question. Uh, it can't be your own. That's the only stipulation. What beer are you drinking? Wow, can't be my own. Um, you, you know, I guess it depends on if I'm in an apocalypse. So, um, uh, I, I like some extreme styles, so I like the smoke beers out of Bomber. Um, I don't know whether I would want to have that be the, the only thing I can drink for the rest of my life, but uh, uh, I, I would say um, if it's an American beer, I would go for one of Benny's at Russia River. Um, I think uh, you know he makes some really fine beers and, and really um, you know pays attention to his craft and, and is a you know an outstanding brewer. So. I'd have to pick a, a Russian river beer. It's, it, it's pretty hard for me. I've got so many friends in the industry, so I'm going to get called out now by all my other friends. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to ruffle any feathers. I know. Hey, Vinny makes some tremendous beers. What are, what are you, are you going Pliny? Are you going blind pig? What one are you going with? Um, I would probably go with blind pig. Okay. Blind pig is a great beer. That was actually kind of like a stair stepper beer to get me into Pliny when I first had it. And that was the first, first beer that I ever had to like figure out, okay, I need to go to the liquor store on this day to get it. And again, yeah. this was when I was in the Bay area, you know, with the Raiders and uh, man, I tell you what, being in that area of California was, was really fun for kind of, you know, that, that uh, renaissance of, of, of craft beer, uh, you know, just, just really fond memories and, you know, a good place to get into it. But uh, Ken, where, where can people, you know, it seems like a silly question uh, because you guys are everywhere. It's pretty easy to follow along with Sierra Nevada. But, you know, if people are looking to stay up to date with, you know, everything you guys are doing or everything new you guys are doing from, you know, the project development to, you know, your estate and all the, you know, the cool things you guys are doing in the community, where is a good uh, place for them to follow along? 
Well, we do have a direct-to-consumer program. So a lot of the beers that um, are just small batch stuff are not sold through our normal distribution channel. So if you go to our website, you can find uh, a lot of those and we'll have regular small small batch releases. And then we have a, uh, a, a small beer club, but I think it's sold out. So I won't even mention that right oh, now. Dang it. Where uh, you'll get really special stuff. Um, um, but uh, yeah, you can go to our website and find out about that too. Awesome. Well, Ken, it's called I... the Alpha Hop Society, but as I said, I don't, I don't know that we have any memberships open right now. But hey, it's all uh, I want for Christmas, Ken. It's all I want for Christmas. <laughs> Get me in. I got it. You got you got to have some pull around there. Maybe. Well, I, uh, okay. Don't, as long as it's between you and I, I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> all right. Awesome. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you coming on the show and doing this. It was great chatting. Uh, you know, I was able to, you know, learn some, some fun new stuff and, uh, I'm sure the listener did as well. Great. I appreciate it and, uh, enjoy, uh, brewing and, and, uh, look forward to connecting with you at some point in the future. All right. Thanks again.